Welcome to the Core Women Podcast. My name is Dr. Summer Watson. I'm a doctor of psychology, podcaster, published author, coach, producer of documentary empowerment films, and empowerment seminars. This podcast is a special place for the hearts and souls of women. It is a place where women share their journeys, strength, resiliency, strategy, and passions. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Mila Duchamp, who is a culture scientist redefining culture and diversity with acceptance, the missing piece to creating a sustainable heart culture. We have so much to talk about, Mila. Let's get right into this. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And thank you for doing such awesome work, Sema. Your work means a lot to so many women. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for that. But I want to hear about you. So let's talk about you, your experience, what it means to be a culture scientist, and your vision. Oh, all right. Well, let's, let me start with my journey first. Okay. okay. <laughs> because, because without the journey, people will be lost about what culture scientists. Right. right. So uh, my journey, the reason why I started my company, Chief of Hearts, which is very focused on culture science, is because of my very toxic experience that I had encountered during my three-year corporate tenure. Right? I used to be with Fortune 500 company, and, and the first six months was fantastic. When I say fantastic, it was great because I was not verbally assaulted. I was not mentally assaulted. I was not bullied or discriminated against. But there were clicks, but you know, clicks are bound to happen. So when I moved to the next team, it was that was well well I do not know what hell is I've never been to hell but in my experience that felt like hell I had a manager well I had two managers and I was working on on STEM program and you say we meet women in tech but so much of discrimination goes on over there so I had two managers and one of my one of my managers, who was not my direct manager, kept on like picking on me, like no matter what I did, it was not jitliness, right? And then she kept on lying to me about, oh, you're the best person I have on the team. You're the best person you can't leave. And whenever I was honest with her about, you know, I need to progress in my career, she would create another lie. She would create different scenarios. It's like distracting a child. Hey, look at the shiny. Hey, look at the candy. And that was the scenario that she was creating for me. And I thought to myself, this is not right. So I started to reach out to other people whom I can acquire as mentors, right? And as I was speaking with these mentors, those mentors were like, what are you doing in your position? You should be progressing. And, and then they were asking, who are your managers? So I, I, <laughs> I shared who my managers are, and they were so shocked. I'm so shocked that they are not doing anything to help you. So the word got around to her and she got really upset at me and she said, you know, are you that stupid? You know, that you need to go and ask so many mentors. I'm your mentor. You don't reach out to anyone. Again, that narrative as to you don't reach out to anyone. That's a threatening narrative to oppress me from gaining visibility, from meeting people, from speaking with people and even growing, right? My profession. Well, so I just, if I may cut in here for a moment, right. it sounds like there was verbal abuse, there was emotional abuse, there was abuse on the job. It sounds like an abuser cycle where they say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this again. Mm -hmm. And yet they do it again. Here's some candy. Let me distract you. But you're not going anywhere. Right. 
Right. So go on. It's just, wow. That's incredible. So, and it came to a point where, you know, when I, when to her, I was retaliating, but to me, I was respectfully questioning and challenging her. And I said, you know, well, you are not doing anything to respond to me. You say you're my mentor. You say you're advocating for me, but I don't see anything. So I am taking things into my own hands, right? I am taking on projects to do stuff. I'm, I'm <clears throat> reaching out to people. I am solving problems all around. And she didn't like what I had to say. So she re- retaliated in such a way that she dumped more work on me. The first thing that you can oppress a person is dumping more work on someone at the workplace, right? Saying this is your job, you have to do. And if they didn't do it, you kind of write them up for for not performing, and which I feel that is such a dumb part in my language, but it is. And and then at, that was the exact same time that my dad passed away, right? Mm-hmm. My dad passed away, and I was what ten thousand miles away. He was in a different continent. I was in North America, and and experiencing grief was so deep, right? And 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 she would say, "Oh, take as many days as you want, but you need to do this, but you need to do that." And at that time, she already knew that she was going to replace me, so she had someone else in mind to replace me. So she created this whole environment saying, Mila is not in the right mindset because her dad passed away. She's not progressing. She's not performing well because her dad passed away. Her mind is not in the right mindset. And I talked to myself, you know, how how dare you use that against me, right? That's right. my vulnerable moment to use that against me and to create scenarios that looked real for managers or top leadership to look at it and I fought back I pushed back really hard thinking you know if you are going to play that game you can play the game as well so what I did was all the projects that she removed me from I I started doing them and her leadership started seeing what I could do so I was invited to the the table to the meetings as to when they have table reads and white paper reads and we go in the circle and the top leadership of VP of this program asked me, Mina, what are your thoughts on this? And she got so pissed off and she messaged me, do not speak without my permission. Whatever you're going to say, type it in and I will batch it in. And I was like, no. So I ignored her. I acted as I didn't see the the ping and I spoke up. The VP really liked what I had to say and he started including me in future projects. She slowly started isolating me, ostracizing me. And as our team grew, I knew what was happening within the team. She would say, she would like send out invites, like this is the meeting that we're having, I would show up for the meeting. But she would tell all the rest of the, my team to show up one hour early. So they had them meeting one hour early without me being there. So I would show up during the time that was sent on the calendar invite. Wow. And the other response was, oh, we already had it. You don't need to know about this. So that was a clear-cut retaliation where everyone ganged up on me, right? right. And, and I felt that I, it, it's not that I hate my, my, my colleagues. I was really, truly disappointed with them because they couldn't make an educated decision. They fell into that group think plane right. where they were like, oh, okay, if this person says she's the manager, that must be true. 
And it was so disappointing where 90% of my colleagues have got nothing to do with this, but I wanted to highlight as to what the landscape is going on right now, right? 95% of them were white. And I thought, you know, if you truly want to be allies, you have to stand up and speak up. So I couldn't, I could not take that toxic environment anymore. And when I was looking for jobs, you know, um, she was like, oh, you know, you would only be good at this. You wouldn't be good at that. So I just, I just didn't care what she had to say because I knew I was going to leave the team. No matter what I did was not good enough. What, whatever I said was not good enough, right? So when I switched teams, oh my God, that was, hundred times worse than in this team. And I felt as if I was moving from one rat nest to another rat nest. This team I had three direct managers. And it was so interesting because it was a new role. The role was created for me to to bring me in and to bridge gaps with other teams. Because the narrative I heard from this team that I was going into was people are not willing to work with them people are pushing back on them. Different teams are not willing to work with them. So I didn't want to go in with bias. I didn't want to go in with uh, preconceived, like my, my thoughts are being influenced. So I went in with a clear conscience, thinking that everyone needs to say as to what is going on. So when I went into the team, I started making appointments with people whom I'm supposed to work with. And the more I spoke with people, I started identifying the problem was with my team and when I started requesting information from these managers information was not given to me thinking like saying you don't need to stick with them they are lying you know they'll create this kind of scenario then I started realizing but the data does not reflect that if they are doing something which is aligned with the company's policy and the mission and we are the only team which is off which are off mission the problem is on our side. Right. So I heard now it's just from my managers as to you are hired exactly to do what I tell you to do. And I said, no, um, I was hired to bridge the gaps to solve the problems. And then they knew I was not a yes lady. Right. And they recognized that. And every time I would question something, I would say, hey, you know, do you have information? They were not willing to give me the information and left me to, it was either a sink or swim mentality. So I started sinking. And every time I would ask my manager, hey, you know, I do not know how to do this. And it would come back in, oh, I thought you knew how to do this. And it was always like, you know, because it's, it's Salesforce is so nuanced, right? And they would always throw it back at me. You said you can do this. But the thing is that you never explained how to do it. Right? And with so many differentiating uh, directions from three managers, <laughs> I felt like a headless chicken. And right. when I speak with one manager, and she would say, no, do not listen to the other two. And then when I speak with this manager, do not speak with the other two. So it was so discombobulating for me until yeah. every time I would say, I'm a very data-driven person. I love working backwards. That's the engineering background in me. Right. Um, I never, I, I, my belief is if it failed, like understand why it failed and retry again. There's no such thing as you failed and that's it, you're such a failure. No, right. that's the chemical engineering background in me. We, as a scientist, as an engineer, yeah. when you try different experiments, you have to keep on trying experiments until you find the optimal experiment. So that's the approach that I was approaching it from. And 
very soon they found out that I was going to unravel whatever BS that they swept underneath the carpet. So they kept on switching up my job description because I would question them, saying, oh, you don't need to do this. You can just do this. And then even within the job script, that, the new job script that they gave me, I found a lot of gaps and holes. And I started questioning and I started saying, you know, we need to build relationships as opposed to just saying, this is what I do. You listen to me because it was cross-functional teams. We had to work with cross-functional teams as a cohesive team in order to progress forward. And they could not understand that. So again, they removed me. They kept on changing job titles. Again, retaliation came in the form of dumping more work on me. And and when I reached out to other teams and top leadership, my manager said, you do not reach out to anyone without my permission. You do not speak with anyone without my permission. You do not send an email to anyone without my permission. All communication has got to be vetted by me. And I felt as though this is not human relationship, right? This is not how you build a relationship and treat, most importantly, treat your humans in your team. Yeah. And the narrative started becoming like, you can't do anything wrong. You're a foreigner. You can't speak English. You don't understand English really well. And you, you can't present things. No one understands you. And, and it came in the form as you're not worthy of being a global program manager. You're worthy of being a warehouse person. And, and those kind of narratives, like to hear that every single day, to get yelled at every single day, I started doubting is the fault with me. And when I approached uh, my HR partners, the, the, the first time I approached my HR partner, he said, I know your managers, they are not like that. It's you who need to change. And just from that conversation, I didn't want to approach him anymore. And I thought, okay, you're not my ally. You're not willing to see what's going on. And you're on your side. So I stopped going to him. So I reached out to another HR manager. And she said, well, clearly your manager is not your champion. You're better off leaving the company. So they already knew what was going on. And very soon I found out that the HR was giving information to my managers every time I would go to them for help or resources. And they would treat me even more bad. And I didn't know... Let me step in here for a second, because there's many things that I, I want to ask you, Mila, because it sounds like when you went from team to team, it was that history was following you from one team to another, number mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Number two, there was nobody there that could be your one, as you call it, your ally, mm-hmm. or two, even somebody to mentor you through these issues. And then three, the onus wasn't necessarily on you to learn your job, it was on them to give you direction, but here they were tying your hands. So my question to you is that first team, when you felt like you didn't have any allies, nobody stepped up, do you think, and this is really interesting to me, do you think that number one, and we'll get back to your story, but do you think that these people, your peers, were afraid for their own jobs, potentially? Absolutely, and that was, because it shook from behavior, right? It shook right. absolutely from behavior because when I first met them, they were cordial. They were very collaborative, very innovative. They had entrepreneurial mindset. And, and certainly when someone is influenced, because under the influence of power, 
right? Because they know that their jobs <laughs> depended on this person. And I certainly saw them adopting to such a way to a group think manner where the yes man, the yes man kind of a person. So yes, they were afraid for their own jobs. At the same time, some of them already had that mindset of to be in a corporation, you have to backstab, you have, you have to throw other people underneath the bus. So it's an amalgam of both. You, you know, people being afraid for their jobs and people who already had that mindset of me first. I have to backstab her of their own scarcity mindset and of their own incompetence. I'm going to call it incompetence because it's there are a lot of teammates in my team. The first, the second team that I'm, the first team that was really toxic, where you can always tell when someone is trying when they feel insecure and the narratives come as. I have to one up you. I have to cut you off in the conversation. So that was happening to me. So I always took the owners, the ownership of how can I enable you? You don't need to be afraid of me because we are all unique in our way. So every time I would have a meeting, I would have an agenda and I'd say, hey, um, X, you know, you have your speaking time. What would you like to present? And in my meeting, I would always say, because I was leading three projects, I would say, these are the three projects I'm leading. How would you like to step in and take ownership of something? Because this is a resume builder for yourself. I was very transparent in how I led things, how I led the team. And even when during that meeting, like narratives were like, well, you're not the leader of us. Well, manager said, you know, this new person is the one who's leading. And then I and I. I would stand up to myself saying, well, it's not about who's leading, who's being the leader. My role over here is I want to finish this. This project needs to go forward. Number two, a title does not make you a leader, right? Your execution, how you treat other people, how you include people, how you accept people makes you a leader. So that kind of like discombobulated your beliefs with what was right. going on with the other manager. And sometimes growth, when I say growth, growth as in being a, a leader, a role leader has got to start from within. We have to check our ego. We have got to check our scarcity mindset. If we are not secure as a person, that kind of bleeds out. And that is what I was seeing in the first toxic team. And right. I, I thought to myself, I'm going to do whatever I can to enable them. But if they are not willing to, it's already an uphill battle for myself. There was a degree of many things. There is a a leverage of power Mm -hmm. from the top. There was power struggles that were engaging because you were trying to explain yourself, yet they were trying to push against that. Mm -hmm. And that came from different tiers, it sounded like. There was definitely what sounded like a abusive relationship amongst all of your management, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. so what did you do? What did you finally say and do about your situation? Because that's a difficult situation to be in knowing that if you go from team to team and you're being treated the same way and you're not really getting anywhere and not being allowed to do your job, mm-hmm. your hands are tied at this point. They want you to every email, every text to be vetted, every piece of information that you put out to be vetted before you could even raise your hand, say hello, anything. Right. 
what did you do and how did you overcome that? Because I could imagine with your own ego, that was really overwhelming, consuming, and oppressive. Mm-hmm. So, well, Sana, it was, it was, uh, oh my God, it was more than toxic environment, right? It was such, it, I felt like a, it, it was a quicksand, right? Uh, even quicksand you can get out of it. But I felt that the, the treatment eroded, it absolutely corroded my confidence. Uh, my identity for that period i could not i could not even recognize myself because i became this unrecognizable person who couldn't articulate from all the abuse who couldn't think critically from all the abuse i actually stood on top of a building in 2018 ready to commit suicide and and the, the universe was definitely looking out for me and i heard a voice say stop and that was the defining moment i don't know where i got the strength from but that that message that voice stop gave me the strength to push back and i said to myself i'm going to push back and that was the exact time i had new team members join in and and those team members said i see what is going on do you see what's going on and that was such a relief that was such a relief I felt as though there are allies and with their help right the, the white people with their help they helped me push forward whereas if I would send out an email if I got pushed back they would say nope I'm working with me like she is the one who's leading this and I mean we moved forward and my managers didn't like it at all so they tried everything in their power to oppress me even more because top leadership was Saying what I was doing, and then top leadership is saying what I, I was doing. They were trying to create another environment where they're asking me to focus on A, B, go back to A. So they created a smear campaign, mm. and and I was like, you know what? It's not worth. It's not worth being here. My health was taking a toll, and and despite whatever they were trying to do, I launched three global programs for EMEA, APAC, and North America and South America, and it felt so empowering. Not empowering, it felt, I felt so enabled, right? I felt seen, I felt hurt. I felt that, you know what, you are the problem. When I actually had allies who say, you are not the problem, they are the problem. When other teams came to me, finally came to me and said, you are not the problem, they are the problem. I felt so liberated. I felt as though the shackles came off <laughs> from my hands, from my from my legs. And I did whatever I had to do and I left the company. And that was the defining also a defining moment for me to like truly realize I've always been creating programs and environments pertaining to how to build a culture from my engineering space when I was an engineer, when I was an educator when I was an entrepreneur and when I was back in higher hat education space, I have always been creating a conducive culture. I have always lived in different parts of the world, studied in different cultures, tribes, egalitarian, collective, individualism cultures, how that works. And I thought, I need to start my culture science company. So from all my experience from being an engineer to educator and living in different parts of the world, and my science background and my human conditioning background, I went back to school to even learn about human conditioning and thought, I am worthy 
people who have egos and scarcity mindset and who are intimidated by me can use their power and privilege to erase me in their minds from their from their views, but I am truly not erased. So I started my culture science company and I call myself a culture scientist and I get a lot of <laughs> a lot of heat from it as well. So people are like, oh you're not a scientist, you don't have a PhD. And I learned how to meet them. I've learned how to meet them because it's like this is my journey. This is my research. I'm doing all original research. I'm doing all original work. I'm speaking to people. This is from my experience. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I'm, a, I'm saying I have the expertise, but I'm always willing to learn, research, and evolve. So here I am today. Oh my goodness, what a journey. And I can see how all of your experience has lent to your development mm-hmm. and your focus and your vision. So I know that we've talked before in the past. Um, I've had a chance to learn a bit more about you. And I do appreciate that you believe that humans have limitless potential to be and to become their best versions. So when the constant epidemic of displacement is shifted into placement and enablement. Now, with that said, that's one of your sentences. Can you break that down for me and for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to take you back into a time where you, you were a child, right? And, right? and just imagine, like imagine you being the bubbly child and playing around in it at the playground and, and you have that sense of, I can conquer, I can do anything, right? If you felt that you wanted to climb the ladder in the playground, you did. If you felt that, you know, you're going to just grab something that your mom says, don't touch it, you will go grab it, right? right? If you wanted peanut butter, you would go grab the peanut butter. If you wanted to draw something, your imagination was just so limitless, right? right. And then as you were introduced to society in school or even at the playground, when the language started where you can't play with this, or when you went to school, the teacher said, that's not right. You're stupid. You can't read. So we started adopting. When I said adopting, we started listening and believing these words are true. Right? But at the same time, if a child is in a really positive environment where the parents are like, you can do anything that you want. If you have an education system where, you're, where you have teachers, educators saying, you can do anything that you want. Sponsorships given to you to ensure that you progress into education right all systems are put into place to either make you progress place yourself or displace yourself so and all these situations in life i'm going to use education as an example right people like students like college students right when you have college students college is really expensive when you have but in different countries it's subsidized I'm going to use the United States for an example. When you have students going into a college, some students can't even complete college. They, they fall out of college, right? And, and that's displacement. When you, under, when you know that a child needs an education in a society that we have created consciously in the U.S., and when you don't give them resources, tools, sponsorships to complete education, even within education, even if you have a sponsorship, when you have educators constantly picking on you for being five minutes late, 
or constantly picking on you where you do use your three-day absentee, right? Sometimes you get, you're given three-day absentee pass. And if you took one-day absentee and you are reprimanded for that, and it limits someone, it, it displaces someone's belief, someone's confidence, and displaces out of society as well, where they start to believe that those who are oppressing with these oppressive words and behaviors, these are the kind of people they're going to see in the workplace. And when they believe that, they will start seeing those kind of behaviors, right? Because let's be honest, sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, like due to what is going on right now, right? With BLM movement, discrimination has become more visible and more people are speaking up. But let's take a few steps back. Not all people are becoming conscious. Not all people want to become conscious of that. So when we have this kind of treatment where we oppress people, we are consciously displacing them. It's just like, it's just like giving someone a low pay, right? Like cash is $11 an hour. And I just did this calculation for a month, they will make like 1,600 before taxes, after taxes, 1,200. 1,200 for a month. Rent, when rent is like $1,400 or $1,600. So where's the extra $400 coming from? And they're forced to take on a second job on top of the 40 hours. That itself is displacing them. And when it displaces them from society, it displaces, not just from society, it displaces them from being a human where they are overworked. Being overworked causes stress. And stress displaces your thought processes. There's a TED talk on how under stress, your brain cells get disconnected. When your brain cells get disconnected, your ability to think critically, to, to speak fluently is lower. But it does not mean that you will be like that for the rest of your life. But when you are out of that stress level, meaning when you're out of that unfavorable environment, where you're placed promptly to, to, to be your limitless self, you can think critically, you can act critically, your creativity level grows up, right? Your ability to build and, and plant grows up too. So, so we need to like think about systemic issues. And that is how granular I take, I always speak uh, to my clients about it. It's like, if we are in a school environment, how granular can we go to truly unleash some, our students' potential, right? There's no just like one way of learning. There's so many different ways of learning. Right. I was I was a slow learner. It's, I, I got 0.100 for my math when, when I was in primary five, where my teacher abused me. My teacher would slap me every day for being stupid, according to her. But mm. can you imagine, can you imagine as educators, if we truly understood how our students are learning, how our students are struggling, and how we have to go from an extended lens as well how our humans are existing because when when you show up it's not summer 5.0 at work i have to perform really well you're not you're not the latest iphone 6 oh, no the latest iphone is what x <laughs> no i think 11. <laughs> oh 11. see 11. <laughs> 11 right it's not like your yeah, iphone 11 in the front line and you know iphone 5 4 at home. Yeah. You're the same person. And we need to erase our false expectation of come and perform at your optimal when 
when extended lens of how someone belongs is not optimal for them to perform. Like right. when someone loses their parents, someone loses their spouse, someone loses a child, grief is not three days for you to get over there. Right. Right. Grief lingers. Grief causes trauma. It lives in your body. It shows up at any point. It can show up 20 years down the road. It can show up six months down the road. It can show up when you're presenting something and a word triggers it, triggers up something. And your confidence goes that you can't speak clearly or, or, or present clearly, right. right? So we truly need to understand from a systemic level how a human belongs, right? If, 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 if they have a disabled child or disabled parent at home, Right, their mind is not going to be 100% at work. Right. How, their mind is going to be, okay, how's my child, how's my disabled child and disabled parent doing at home, right? And if they don't have childcare, not everywhere can afford childcare and adult care. How right. can I? Th- then we truly need to understand, okay, so these are all the crises, personal crises and other crises which is going on in someone's life. And when we become sponsors to truly eliminate, not truly eliminate, but how can I help? How can I help from a space or either workspace or if from a school space or even from a societal right. space, right? Right. When you remove stress, blindfold comes out because when you're under stress, tunnel vision is caught. When tunnel vision clears up, you have a bird's eye view from the top and you can function really well. Your confidence goes yourself, right? Have you ever felt so confident, Sama, that you feel that I can do anything because. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. I have to go back to what you're saying because I, I understand it and getting to the granular level, mm-hmm. so to speak. I understand it because it's systemic. I understand it because I've worked in different fields of education. Right. In hospitals, in organizations, profit, nonprofit, you name it. So you see these systemic issues going on. This is the issue for me as a scientist, as a researcher, as somebody who's a professional in the field of psychology. When I look at a human being, I look at them from a total perspective, Mm -hmm. at least not just from a small or very limited Mm -hmm. perspective. So when I look at a human being's function, I just don't look at, oh, are, do they have a mental health problem? I'm looking at, do they have a medical issue? What's okay. their social functioning look like? What is their family situation? Do they have networks? I'm looking at the total of how this person functions, both physically, socially, emotionally. Why? Because all of that impacts the way a human functions. Right. And so when we talk about getting to a granular level and we talk about, let's say, for instance, in schools, I have worked in schools where we've worked with a challenged kid where that kid is not coming to school. That parent is not woken that kid up. That kid has not gotten breakfast. They get to school mm-hmm. and they're doing horribly because they're tired. They can't eat. And so the next thing we have is it. And this is also about parents having a time taking the effort, having the energy, understanding the resources. So there are different streams of like understanding here, both on a organizational level, as well as a community level, as well as an individual level where it needs to all come together. And this could be like 
wow, how do you, how do you bring it all together? Because many times I'd sit in an SST, which is a student study team, or an IEP, an individual education plan, where they're bringing together that parent, that doctor, that clinician, that principal, that, and they've got teams of people in there to try and construct or deconstruct what's going on so that they can build a foundation that helps this child. But if we're going through this with every single person, every entity, that's going to be challenging. So how do we as scientists, how do we as researchers, how do we as a cultural scientist, how do you, how do you make this change this construct? How do you, because it's so leveled and so saturated with, this is how we were taught. This mm -hmm. is the culture that we're raised in. This is what our belief system is. Just like when you went into that job and there were those people and you had no allies and you said, number one, they could have been feeling threatened regarding their own job. Number two, some of them had the mindset of you come in and you just go for it and you function at a hundred percent. And it doesn't matter how anybody around you feels, you're going to win. You're going to win this game. How do you change that? Mila? How do you change that? So it's not an overnight thing. Right. <laughs> definitely not an overnight thing. And change is uncomfortable, right? Change is very sure. uncomfortable uh, to a lot of people. And change can only happen when education partners with execution comes into place. And when I say education and execution, it needs to start from how do we chip away generational trauma? When you mentioned about parents, right? When, when children come in where they don't have enough sleep or, you know, they, something is going on at home, right? When there's no food, when parents, because we need to like look at, uh, the parents are struggling. When you are struggling, you, I do not want to say automatically, you over time become bitter. When you become bitter, you get angry. Not everyone, but when you become angry, where do you take the stress out on the child, right? And we need to start. Right, because, because it either, either becomes, they become angry or desensitized. So right. one of the things you're getting is you're getting abuse or you're getting neglect right. because of it. So there's two spectrums there, and both are essentially abuse, because if you're neglecting a child, that's right. also abuse because they're not getting the, the food, they're not getting the rest, they're not getting the, the care provided that they need. Right. So going back to that, right, and we can't just fix one element, because everything correlates. It's like the ecosystem. And I always go back to the ecosystem. I'm a science nerd. So, and that's exactly how we must start thinking. Like, if we want to fix one issue, we have to look at how can I help that parent, right? What is going on? Are they oppressed in their own system? Like, if they want to come out and they keep on getting oppressed, if they want to come out, if they keep on getting oppressed, how can we not fix it, but change that, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. people, people don't want you to fix it. People want you to become sponsors. And this is where the collaboration piece comes in because a lot of people have this mindset, work is separate from home. Home is separate, separate from school. School is separate from society. No, everything is co-related. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah. It's, and so we need to come together as a cohesive community as to 
as to like partnering at with different organizations and you know and this, i always go back to organizations because organizations have the power because like most organizations do not get taxed they have the capital right they have the capital and this is where you know you have the power to make a change organizations Everyone focuses on a social responsibility as a PR stunt. Why not just remove that PR stunt and say, how can I redirect my role of social responsibility into organization or into parts of community where I can help those communities, right? Right. Like, like try investing uh, into or donating money into schools rather than saying, I'm doing philanthropy work, right? right. Give that money to schools give that money to, to, to other companies or even in your company, eliminate $11 an hour, eliminate $18 an hour job, and pay $25 to $30 minimum wages that it's sustainable, right? And that's how like, philanthropy has got to come into, has got to intersect and collaborate with, with other functions of our community, right? right? Like as opposed to saying, oh, I'm already doing my own philanthropy work. I'm already donating computers to school. Yes, that's great. Donating computers to school is great because it enables. But how about donating money to students who can eat, who can pay rent, who can say, hey, mom, I have the money right now to pay rent or to eat or to buy groceries. That kind of support changes everything. And that's the whole point of being a sponsor. And that's right. why I always go back to saying, do not be a mentor, be a sponsor. I like that. I do like that, Mila. But let me give you an example. So I ran a nonprofit for veterans. And mm -hmm. at the time, when I was looking at the different nonprofits that were around, one particular nonprofit was getting some bad press because of the donations that they were receiving, they were misallocating those, those donations mm -hmm. to the administration versus to the actual people that needed the funding, mm -hmm. right? So I think people at that time looked at that and said, oh, I'm no longer giving money to that organization or being a sponsor, so to speak, because the way that they're allocating the funding is 1%, this is just an example, 1% to directly to the, the people that need it, and then the other 60% to administration costs as well as, you know, um, supply costs and blah, 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 right? So they were getting these big salaries. And so a lot of times it's, even if you go to a smaller example of, well, I give people that are displaced or homeless mm -hmm. money, mm -hmm. then people will say, why do you give the money? Why do you give these people money when you don't know if they're spending on A, B, or C? Mm -hmm. And it's like, because I choose to give them money and not care what they spend it on. How do you change a mindset and how do you change a structure where there could be potential misuse of funding? Right. So that's a whole trust issue, right? Right. The, the uh, well, it's not just a trust issue. It happens, you know, yeah. Yeah. it actually happens. Yeah. It, it comes to a trust issue when you, when you give your own monies to somebody maybe on the street and you just have to like let go of hey right. there's nothing attached to that money except you're giving the potential to right. give yeah there's nothing attached to that money and until something happens where an organization 
does something to foul up that trust. Right. You know, I, I hear you. There are two sides, right? Two spectrums. Right. Of the, Absolutely. Where, where I, I used to live in Seattle. <laughs> the, the far, far left. <laughs> yes. I live in Seattle. And well, homelessness is everywhere, but don't worry. Homelessness is a large problem over there. And I would see homeless people everywhere, right? And I, and, and my heart did not feel right every time I would see them. And sometimes I would walk across this, they, they were settled in Chinatown area and then slowly they started moving because they were moved, they were moved and moved. And I felt really sad for them, sad, not as in pity, as sad because they didn't have a shower. They didn't shower, they didn't brush their teeth, or they didn't have a place to wash their clothes. And, and once I gave a lady, a, a homeless lady, she was like holding a purse and I gave her $2 because that's what I had at that point of time as I was driving. And the next time I went, there was this person standing in front of my car, not wanting me to move out until I gave them money. So I just locked my door and I'm ashamed, I, I, I'm ashamed that I did that. But just for my own safety, I locked my door and I sat there and he was yelling at me for not giving money. And at that point of time, I saw him walk back to his tent. And around the tent, I saw a lot of needles. And I didn't want to make a judgment because that, that is absolutely wrong of me to judge someone else. But at the same time, it occurred to me, if I gave this person money, what will this person be using it for? I want goodness for this person. But at the same time, to your point, the owners have got to come onto someone as to how can I be responsible for myself first, right? It could be right. mental mental illness, right? But right. if it's men mental illness, are they seeking help to to be on medication to 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 take care of that aspect of themselves first, right? right. So it's it's a hard spectrum to identify, but at the same time. We need, the, like, um, I don't know what you call them, uh, if I'm using the right term to describe them, the mental, not mental institute. Um, Locked facilities? Yeah, for them to, I, I know that they're already doing it a lot, but how can they facilitate that part and say, okay, in order to get you off the street, let's go into this progression. And sometimes people go back because it's their own, own decision to go back to whichever lifestyle that they were having because it's easy or sometimes people express that it's not easy because they have given up when they go into the clean part and they have background of being homeless background of you know drug abuse background of all these things which is considered as, as negative according to job uh, employers right and they give up because they move forward and then they digress back. They move forward and they digress back. I think it's a real multi-level situation. Right. And there, it's systemic, as you said, having worked in law facilities for over the course of my, my professional life, mm -hmm. I've seen people revolving door clients who basically like to live on the street. They don't care that to have a home. They actually are comfortable there. 
that they come into the facility to take a shower, to get some meals, and they go back on the street. And they like that. That's what they know. And they've told us over and over, this is what I know. This is what feels comfortable to me. I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to be responsible for A, B, and C. So there's not a lot of change that, and you have to accept that. Right, right. Like you have to accept that there's going to be a level of that. Then there's a level of, I don't, I didn't know what my resources were. I had no idea. So that's how I ended up in this law facility. Right. Okay. So here's maybe a resource that can help them through those steps of being connected with resources, maybe getting clean, maybe taking them through a program where we can get them off all medications, drugs, prescribed and otherwise street drugs so that we can get an understanding of their baseline functioning mm -hmm. so that then we can connect them with resources for housing, for jobs, for medications, for medical, for, so yeah, they are doing it. It just, there's so many systemic issues that we're dealing with and there's yeah. so many different levels that I think what you're doing in regards to being a cultural scientist and the way that you're looking at this and the way that you're deconstructing this can bring insight, can bring insight into how we proceed as communities, as a country in relation to recognizing those that are disadvantaged, those that mm -hmm. are oppressed, maybe doing mind shifts. And, and that's going to take some time. Okay. It's going to take some time. Yeah. And people like you giving us different perspectives about how we might be able to do that is so important, which gets me to your business and we've touched on that a little bit yeah. so let's go back to chief of hearts which is your business that you've created and your diverse background in stem you've talked a little bit about that and being a culture scientist and due to your unique back background how you work with folks to find solutions so i love that you have this unique background in stem that you're called a cultural scientist give us three tips on how you specifically work with folks with your yeah. background yeah, absolutely. So I uh, I always have honest conversations with people, very honest conversations. I I don't go in and say, oh, I'm going to teach you unconscious bias because I don't believe in unconscious bias anymore. Everyone is conscious of something and the bias comes into place. So I always start with honest conversations. And and I'm also, I'm also the kind of person, if I know that, if it's not aligned with me, and when you bring me into a company and you feel, and when you say, Oh, you're a consultant. I just want you to to give, you know, take a look at this and tell me if I'm on the right path. I would, I'll honestly say I'm not willing to work with you because I'm not here to validate you. I'm here to truly come in and, and become a success partner with you and say, hey, what are the gaps that you're trying to fill? Let me take a look with you and, and really work together. That's what success partnership is. So that is the first thing I always do. And the second thing is that I do is that I go in a very granular level where most companies get uncomfortable with. And, and when they get uncomfortable, it's, that's when NDA comes into place, right? They will say, oh, find this NDA. Right. But I don't mind finding the NDA, but at the same time, it's like, what are you trying to hide? Right. And you know that that's a problem. So I always, that's the second step I do. I do deep analysis and I don't believe in polls that way. I don't believe in, in a sending out service to people because I truly understand how a human exists, right? When you ask a human to take a survey, it depends on the mind, uh, on the mentality. At, at which state are they in at that moment? Are they stressed? 
Are they angry at someone? Or did they lose hope in the environment? And are they doing it so they are afraid that it's going to be tracked in the back end? Right, who's tracking it? If the software belongs to the company, we do not know how it's being tracked, how it's going, how it's being distributed, how it is being attached to someone's computer with the IP address. Right, right. So that fear comes into place, and that that may propel them to fill in the survey in a very um, untruthful manner. I'm not going to say they're lying, but just fearing for their own on job so i i don't do that when i do do deep analysis i do one-on-one like it's, it's, this is what i'm going to do and i do it from a third person survey i don't depend on the companies so like that is data right there and i didn't just depend on data from a, a survey that i'm releasing i do focus groups i meet one-on-one with everyone because human connection i believe that human connection is so important Right. Um, if you can always tell if someone is comfortable speaking or not comfortable speaking, and that itself is data. That itself is data for you, information for you to like. Why are they feeling uncomfortable? So I always go into companies and be honest with them, and I do deep analysis, buy um, success partnerships, and I tell them I'm not here like one time. Okay, this is what you do. I always do like a year six months to a year because going back to the point that we spoke about change right change doesn't happen does not happen overnight i believe that if your body takes three months to lose weight for you to see changes three month period is when the first step the first catalyzation happens to changing when change happens so i usually do six months to a year and i tell organizations i'm here for six months to a year uh, and I tell them, I'm not a consultant. I am your success partner. I have a seat, not at your table. I have a seat in your open space. And that's how I work. You know, and really going back to me being a paradigm breaker, right, shifter. I, I shift paradigms like, I'm not your consultant. I'm not here to like tell you, oh, this is the doctor. And I'm going to put everything in flatters and make you feel happy. No, I give you the truth. I give you what needs to to be done in order to really trigger that heart culture because it's it's not something like we don't talk about diversity diversity as a trending topic we don't talk about uh, culture as a trending topic it's like over the past four years everyone is like oh i'm i'm vp of culture i'm i'm chief of culture i'm chief of people culture is not about ping pong tables and free lunches people no culture is more than that and it's and it's not a culture fit. Oh my God, I can go on about this. It's not a culture <laughs> fit. <laughs> well, you brought up some really great tips and how you work with folks and how you would work with folks regarding your business and how you would collaborate with them, how you would meet with people, how you'd have honest conversations, mm-hmm. how you get down to a granular level. And I really like what you said, and I'm going to touch on this for just a moment, what you said in relation to your body losing weight and it takes about three months. Well. We have something in the DSM called adjustment mm-hmm. and adjustment means that it takes about three to six months to adjust to something, right? Mm-hmm. To adjust to a new job, to adjust to a place where you're living, a new community, a new organization. It takes time, three to six months, you'll see that adjustment. Mm-hmm. So it's funny how you went back to that and said, it takes me about three months. And then I set up something with them for the six to 
month to a year mark in relation to working with them and really changing the paradigm, right? And so you've naturally and organically tuned into something where it's actually in textbooks. It does take about that length of time, three to six months to really look at the adjustment, to look at somebody really coming out of their shell. Because when you first meet somebody, you're like, oh my gosh, that person's so great. But then it takes some time. It takes some time to understand their personality, how they function. At about that three to six month mark, I'm like, huh, okay, I have a better idea of that person. <laughs> I have a better idea of that organization. Right. I have of how they're functioning and what kind of structure they have in place and what they truly right. need. Right? Right. So that's what I tell folks. When you make, I, you know, this is just from my, my own standpoint. When you make friends, you're three to six months. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. No, I love that you said that because my dad my dad used to always tell us what me and his siblings, like if you truly want to know who is your true friend, right? If you truly want to know someone's real real character, give them three to six months. Give them three to six months. And yep. they will show their true colours within three to six months when you invite them to different spaces. Because three months, how that's that's three months is the base, the minimum someone can put on a mask, right? And then after that three months to six months, people will get tired, and at some point, they will burst and reveal. So yeah, I, I'm with you. My dad would always say three to six months. Well, and it's something that's not just, you know, something that you recognize and that you said, hey, I'm going to work with people starting at three months and then we're going to work up to three months and six months. It's actually in textbooks. It's actually in, it's actually in books where we, we use to diagnose, to right. look at a person, look at function, human functioning. So it's there. So I, I wanted to touch on that because I thought that was a really interesting, interesting something that you said that you touched on because it's, it is, it's an unveiling of the way we've functioned organizations are going to get an insight of how we as employees work within their community. It's going to give you and me an idea of how we function within that community. And if we're driving with that culture and with that system. Mm -hmm. So give yourself some time when you move, when you go to a new job, when you have children, have some grace for yourself because you're adjusting. Right. So my last question for you, Mila, is if you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be? Some words of wisdom. So I truly, truly believe in this, right? A huge missing component that we have put on the blindfolders is acceptance. Acceptance is the key to truly understanding someone else. Without acceptance, can, that can never be belonging. There can never be inclusion. There can never be diversity. There can never be evolution or progression or change. We have to start with acceptance. We have to accept our flaws, accept our situation, accept our journey in order to take the first step. Thank you. That is lovely. Thank you, Mila, for joining me on the Core Women podcast today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. If you'd like to know more about Mila Deschamps, please check out her website at www.miladechant.com or follow Mila on Twitter and Facebook. If you need a strategic empowerment coach, contact me. If you want to tell your story of empowerment 
or how you have reconstructed your life to drive change, send me a video or an email of your story providing permission to use it on my social media platforms. If you want to be featured on my podcast, reach out to me at infocorewomen.com. I want to hear from you and to get to know you. You are now part of the Core Women Home. Let's get to know each other. Let's learn from one another. Please follow Core Women on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please let your women friends know about this podcast. If you write about Core Women in your social media posts, please hashtag Core Women. This is all about women. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about Core Women, and please stay tuned for continued growth of the Core Women movement. Let's grow and drive change together. 